TorahCafe.com. I want to share with you today a story. It's a story that when I heard it the first time, it left a very deep imprint on me. It's about a debate that occurred in McGill University. In, before, before my days and before your days, in 1958, between two people, a historian of England, Professor Arnold Toynbee, and the Israeli ambassador to Canada, a man named Professor Jacob Herzog. Toynbee was not Jewish, nor was he very fond of the existence of Israel. Herzog was a great scholar, a thinker, Israel's ambassador to Canada, and an advocate for Israel. They had a public debate. Toynbee was world-renowned, prolific author, a well-known historian till today, Arnold Toynbee, and it was a public debate. Toynbee presented his case. The case he made was Judaism is similar to Christianity and Islam in the sense it's a religion. It's not a nationality. Just as a British Christian or an Australian or Italian or an American Christian share different nationalities but the same religion, Jews are the same. You can have a Jew of Australia, a Jew of the United States, a Jew of Russia, a Jew of Canada, Ottawa. They share the same religion, but they're not of the same nation. You are a Canadian, I'm an American. You are a Russian, I'm French. He's Italian, she's Australian. And therefore, they're not entitled to a homeland. A homeland is not for a religion. A homeland is for a people, for a family, for a nation. And Jews are not a nationality, they're a religion. This was Professor Toynbee's argument in 1958. You have to understand that Israel has been forced to defend itself from the day it was created, as it still is forced to defend itself more than six decades later. Professor Herzog gave a response to Toynbee that was unforgettable. I'm going to paraphrase his response, albeit in my own words, but the concept is his. But for you to appreciate the response and the story he told as a response, I have to raise this question. Because this is an important question. And the question is this. How did we, our people, survive? What do I ask this question? What do I mean, how did we survive? Mark Twain penned a very, very famous piece in Harper Magazine in the late 1800s. And he asked a question to which he had no answer. His question was this. The greatest empires and civilizations have been relegated to the dustbins of history. Where is ancient Egypt today? Where is ancient Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire? They are in Wikipedia. Mighty, mighty nations, civilizations that ruled half the world, for some of them for hundreds of years. And yet, 
the rule of history is you rise, in Hegel's thought, you rise, you have your plateau, and then ultimately you decline. As in human life, we're born, we grow, we reach our peak, and then we go down, and we end up by the worms. It's true with individuals, and it's true also with collective peoples, groups, and nations. Now here you have an exception called the Hebrews, a tiny nation. We still don't constitute even 1% of humanity. When I was in China once, they were asking me about these Jews. I said, how many Jews do you think we are? So a Chinese man said, based on the noise that you make, probably three and a half billion. <laughs> I told him we're happy. We're happy to get 15 million. He says, oh, that's the amount we just had last week. New, new ones, in other words. As I'm speaking, they just got another million. And we lost another million, unfortunately, to assimilation. So, here you have a tiny nation, but it's not a nation that was isolated on an island somewhere in an African corner, keeping to themselves. It's a nation that every single mighty empire has targeted for abuse, for persecution, and usually for annihilation. There's not a, do you understand, my dear students, there's not a single generation of Jewish history when a major political and military force does not blame all the world's ills on the Jewish people and is determined to exterminate it. Even in 2013, as we get together here in this lovely hotel to fresh sushi and kishka, there are millions of people who really believe that the greatest thing for History would be our extermination. And there was a leader of a sovereign country, a member of United Nations, that openly calls for the destruction and annihilation of an entire country and every Jewish citizen of it, namely Israel. And this has been in every single century since the birth of the first Jew, Abraham. You know which year? You'll remember this year. Abraham was born in 1948, since creation. Israel was created when? 1948, after the Common Era. Abraham in the Jewish calendar was born in 1948. Now is 5773 in the Jewish calendar. Israel is 1948, and, Israel, and Abraham is 1948. Okay, that's a trivia, trivia question. Next. And this little nation, not only has it yielded tremendous influence, it's changed civilization in more than one way, but it survived and it thrives and the same nudniks. You know what a nudnik is? There are three types of people. Shlemiels, shlemazels, and nudniks. The shlemiel is the guy who pours the soup on the shlemazel. And the nudnik is the guy who wants to know what type of soup was it. This may be very relevant to this retreat. Uh, the same... <laughs> The same nudniks who drove the world mad then are still here today. And the question Mark Twain asked is, why and how did they survive? What was the mechanism? What was their magic? What was the tool? What did they have that Greek didn't have, that Greece didn't have, that Rome didn't have, that Babylonia didn't have? What is it? What was the secret ingredient? to keep them alive and fresh and still creative. We are here, we laugh, we giggle, we daydream, we fall asleep, etc. But we're alive. How and why? He concluded the article with a question mark. He didn't have an answer. 
despite his brilliance. But I think you will agree with me, my dear students, that as Jews, we have to provide an answer to Mark Twain's question. Because if we don't understand the key ingredient that brought us here 3,300 years after our inception as a nation, how will we know how to go forward? If we don't appreciate what it was that brought us to this point, how do we know how to forge ahead? And you are here at this conference to be able to become future leaders of a nation that is tiny in numbers, but has preserved a secret that you will be charged with God's grace to bring to the next generation because it's always about the youth who have the power to define what our tomorrow will look like. Never underestimate your gift and your indispensable value to thousands of years of our history. An entire nation Millions and millions of souls that lived in the past 4,000 years look down at you. And in a silent whisper, I can hear them beseeching you, each and every one of you, to figure out what was the ingredient that Mark Twain lacked understanding of so that you can make the fateful decision of how to forge ahead. And here I ask you today, at the opening of the Sinai Scholars Conference here at the National Jewish Retreat of August 2013, what is the answer to Mark Twain's question, how did we survive? Now, if we would be having a science class and doing a scientific experiment, and I don't mean to bring nightmares back from uh, high school, but if I am, you could start daydreaming, as you have done in high school and some of you have done in college, and Jews do during my speeches all the time. And then you'll come back whenever you're ready. You're welcome to come back and return at your convenience, at your luxury. You could take a first-class ticket to Australia and knock yourself out in your daydream as you wish. You can fall in love with whoever you want as long as you come back to reality. And I will be here to give you a hug as you sober up. So, if we would be doing a scientific experiment and we ask this question, we see an object that survives through various climates and various situations and circumstances. And we want to understand what are the key features of its survival. What will the scientist, what will the researcher look for? He will look for what we call the constants. He will look for the character, or she will search for the characteristics that are always present. For example, if you see something that survived for 500 years under difficult conditions, you will not attribute its power of endurance to a temporary characteristic that was sometimes present and sometimes not present, because that cannot explain logically the power of its endurance during the times when it lacked that characteristic. Rather, you will search for something that was with it forever throughout the entire period of time, and then perhaps you can attribute its survival to that. And if you have three such features, now you have to research which one is essential and which one is not so consequential. If you only have one feature that is a constant and everything else changes and fluctuates, it's logical and objective to assume that we have to credit the power of endurance to that constant feature. And here I ask you a simple question. We are a nation. We're all children 
of parents who are children of parents back, 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 back. Although sometimes we get very self-centered and we see our mothers and fathers as annoying or worse. Nonetheless, we come from somewhere. Thousands of years back, is there one characteristic that has been with the Jewish people from the day we became a nation three and a half thousand years ago and accompanied us as a people constantly through thick and thin, good times and bad times, through our exile, through every country in the world until this very day as I stand here in front of you. Or there is not even one constant. If we could find two constant features, then we have to ask the second question. Which one should we credit with allowing us to survive? If there's only one feature, logic is probably to attribute it to that feature. So we ask and we go straight to what would seem the most logical. What keeps a nation together? A homeland, a nationality. We're Americans, those who are Americans. We live in the United States of America. The Canadians among us live in Canada. Yes, yes, we like you, don't worry. <laughs> and the Brits, the Brits, they live in Britain. It's the homeland, it's the soil of the country that unites us as a people. Perhaps, you know why we survived three and a half thousand years? We were in a unified, cohesive homeland. We lived together in our national homeland, and that kept us. Is that the case? Sadly, from most of our history, 98% of Jews have been exiled from their homeland, dispersed throughout the entire globe. So that doesn't do it. That's not a constant. For the minority of our history, were we in Israel? Till 1948, there were always Jews in Israel, but very few. Most of our history is outside the land of Israel. So you say, okay, it's not a land. Probably this nation had an army. We had an army that always protected us for three and a half thousand years. It defended us. It fought off all aggressors. And that's why we're here. Is that true? Unfortunately, for most of our history, we were defenseless. Thank God today... Israel has a strong army, the IDF, and we pray for them. But unfortunately, for most of our history, we were scattered without any army defending us and protecting us. So you might say, what is the binding factor of Jewish history? Culture. Jewish culture. But if you know anything about Jews, you know that Jewish culture varies from milieu to milieu. Jews basically adopted the culture of their hosts. Some Jews don't even know what gefilte fish is. Some Jews don't know what schug is. The culture of Yemenite Jews is not the culture of Ashkenazic Jews. The culture of Iraqi Jews is completely not the culture of German Jews. Culture of Polish Jews, Eustruten, is not the culture of Spanish Jews, Sephardic Jews. Different cultures. Perhaps it was language. A language holds a people together. Is there one language that all Jews spoke in the past 3,000 years? Absolutely not. Most Jews, for most of our history, didn't even know Hebrew. They adopted usually the language of their host or a different language, Aramaic. You know, much of our prayers are in Aramaic, including the Kaddish, Yiskadal, Yiskadash, Yiddish. 
or other countries, or other, or other languages, Ladino, or the country of our host, like now I'm speaking in English for a reason. Thank you for the applause, but can you repeat what I said? <laughs> okay, very good, very good. God willing, next year, when you come back, and I'll, speak to you, I'll be able to speak to you in Hebrew. But hopefully you'll bring your friends who won't understand Hebrew, so they'll speak in English, and then the year after they'll know Hebrew. But we know that so many of us don't know that language, so it's not the language. So now I ask you a question. Is there one characteristic that has accompanied your people, our people, for the last three and a half thousand years continuously, if it's not a homeland, and not an army, and not a culture, and not a language, and not a particular type of food, is there anything or maybe nothing? If there's nothing, new. If there's 20 things, I have to start researching. But what if I only find one thing, and I see that that thing did not exist among any other nation that perished. Wouldn't the skeptic, scientist, objective mind within me start asking, hmm, maybe I have to give that thing more credence than many Jewish leaders, thinkers, professors, scholars, authors, politicians, journalists pay tribute to. And now I come back to McGill University in 1958. You remember the debate between Arnold Toynbee and Jacob Herzog. First names, please. Very important. Arnold Toynbee, Jacob Herzog. Toynbee says, we're not a nation. We don't need a homeland. We're a religion. Jacob Herzog turns to Professor Toynbee, packed house in McGill, and says... I'm going to tell you a story. Three Olympic airplanes land from heaven in three distinct airports. The first airplane lands in Athens. How many of you have been to Athens? It lands in Athens, in Greece. Out of the plane comes an old man with an impressive demeanor, an impressive beard, pointing upward. And when the airport attendant greets him, he asks this elderly man, what is your name? The man says, my name is Socrates. The airport attendant says, hmm, I have an uncle with a similar name. Maybe you're related to me? He says, I doubt I'm related to you. What brings you here, old man Socrates? Socrates says, what brings me here? You want to know what brings me to Athens? Yes, what brings you here? He says, take me to the Acropolis. And you'll see where I conceived and gave birth to Greek philosophy. Where the sages of, the sages of Athens sat and mused about the truths of the world. The truths of the universe. Take me to the Acropolis. So I could observe firsthand how Greek philosophy is flourishing. 
and the man says the Acropolis, it's in ruins. For $9.50, I can give you a tour through the ruins. He says the Acropolis is in ruins? Absolutely yes. So tell me, he says, how is the Greek empire doing? He says, Greek empire? What empire? When empire? We're barely struggling to survive. Greece is of Tsaris. You know what Tsaris is? We have problems, never-ending problems. We don't even realize if we, we don't know if we're going to have a budget. What do you mean? What happened to the Greek empire? He says, we don't have an empire. We have a country called Greece. It's a member of NATO. Socrates says, what in the world is NATO? So he starts giving him a lecture about NATO. He says, is the world saturated with Greek philosophy? He says, I hate to tell you, nobody's really interested in Greek philosophy. I mean, there's a few scholars who still read the Republic who are still into Mr. Socrates and Mr. Plato and Mr. Aristotle, but most students are, uh, discuss more their iPhones. Socrates says, what's the language you're speaking in? You, don't you speak in the ancient Greek language? He says, no, 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 no. We don't know ancient Greek. Socrates says, can you please tell, take me to the temple of Zeus. He says, what's Zeus? The temple of Zeus, the god Zeus. He says, we don't got no god Zeus. So what do you have? Who do you worship? He says, we have the Greek Orthodox Church. He says, what's the Greek Orthodox Church? He says, don't you know about the church? No, Socrates. He says, what's the church? He says, Christianity, Jesus. You don't know these things? No, Socrates says. I don't know about this. I know about Zeus. This is not my Greece. This is not my Athens. I am out of here. He gets back on the Olympic plane and he bids farewell to a glorious past that is no more. A second Olympic airplane lands in Rome, in Italy. An old man, impressive, impressive posture, walks out. You can see he's a statement, he's a statesman and he's fearless. The airport attendant approaches him and says, Welcome to Rome. What is your name? The man says, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Ah, like the Caesar salad. You made the Caesar salad? He says, what Caesar salad? Caesar, the Caesar of Rome. Tell me, how are the Roman Caesars doing? How is the Roman Empire? He says, Mr. Julius, I don't know how to break this to you. There are no Caesars already for 1,500 years and no Roman Empire. He says, so what is Rome? Rome is a city. Where? In Italy. What's Italy? It's a country. It's a member of NATO. What's NATO? He gives him the NATO lecture founded in 1946, blah, blah, European Union, shut He says, tell me, can you take me to the steps of the Senate? He says, why do you have to go to the steps of the Senate? He says, I have 
endured a lot of agony on the steps of the Senate. A tu brute, then Caesar falls. I want to revisit it. He says, there's no steps of the Senate. It's destroyed for more than a millennium. He says, take me to the Colosseum. He says, for $8.50, you could see the ruins of the Colosseum. Take me to my gladiators. He says, gladiators, $7.25. You could see the ruins of the gladiators. Take me to my circuses and gymnasiums. They don't exist. So what do you have in Rome? We have the Vatican. He says, how is the Roman Empire doing? Does the world still tremble when they hear the name Rome? He says, I don't know how to break this to you. Rome is just a city. Some tourists come to hear the Pope. He says, what's the Pope? The Pope is a guy who believes you have to be celibate. In the original text it said celebrate. But he read it as celibate. They don't get married. Whatever. He gives him this spill about the Pope. He says, take me, take me to worship the God of Jupiter. He says, there's no God of Jupiter. I told you there's a Pope. Caesar looks at him and says, why aren't you speaking to me in Latin the way I speak to you? He says, sir, Mr. Caesar, nobody speaks Latin anymore. There's a few PhDs who do Latin. We speak other languages. Here we speak Italian and we eat pizza and pasta. You want pizza? I can give you some pizza. And Julius Caesar looks at him and says, this is not my Rome. I'm out of here. He gets on the Olympic plane and he leaves. A third Olympic plane lands. You know in which city? Tel Aviv. Ben-Gurion Airport. As some of you just landed a little while ago. Israel Inks. <laughs> Me included. But we didn't get the Olympic plane. We got a different plane. Here's an Olympic airplane. Lands in Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. An airport employee runs up the steps. An old man walks out. He looks at the old man and he says two words. What were the two words? Shalom Aleichem. Peace unto you. And the old man gives him a hand and says two words. Aleichem Shalom. Unto you peace. The airport employee looks at him and says, What's your name? Mashimcha. What is your name? And the old man says, My name is Moshe. Moses Moshe. And the airport employee says, Hey, come on me, Moshe. My name is also Moshe. Shalom Aleichem. Moshe, Moshe, give me a hug. You want a lafa? You want lafa? We have lafa here, Moshe. With chips, with flaffle balls, kharif, yeah, good, good, more, more chips. 19 shekel. <laughs> he says, the airport employee, the import employee says, 
says, Moshe, Moshe, where are you from? And the old man says, I'm from Egypt. And the flight employee says, and I am from Tbilisi, Georgia. Tbilisi, I made Aliyah seven months ago. I came here. They already ripped me off. They ripped me off, these Jews. I'm from Tbilisi, you're from Egypt. Wow. Moshe from Egypt, what brings you here? And Moshe from Egypt says, it's my land. Moshe, have you been here? And Moshe from Egypt says, no. So Moshe from Georgia says, so why do you call it your land? He says, because I dreamt a lot about this land. I worked tirelessly for this land. I made it to the border of this land but I never entered into the land. But it's my land. Old man Moshe looks at Moshe from Tbilisi and says, forgive me if you don't understand my question. I just have to ask. I came here on an express flight and I realized I forgot something very precious to me. I don't know if you know what it is, but I forgot something that's called talit and tefillin. You think I could find somewhere to fill in? And Moshe from Georgia looks at him and says, Who do you think you are? I just put on tefillin. Here, look. Pulls up his sleeve. You see, I just finished putting on tefillin. You're holier than thou. You think you're the only religious guy. I also put on tefillin. And now you're already coming from Egypt and you think you're God's gift to humanity. You're the only Orthodox Jew who puts on tefillin. Moshe from Egypt says, you have tefillin. I can borrow them. I'm not Jewish. You're the only Jew. You're pompous. I Jew just like you. I'm more Jew than you. I'm from Georgia. You're from Egypt. You're from Morsi's country. I'm from Georgia. From Stalin's country. <laughs> Moshe says, wow, you have tefillin, yeah. They go off the plane. They come into the airport. Old man Moshe says, you know, I've been fasting now for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm starving. You think they have food? He says, food? 180 restaurants in the Ben-Gurion airport. Moshe says, you don't understand. I don't eat all foods. Forgive me for my question. I eat only kosher. You know what kosher is? The man gets insulted. Here can you come. You come from Egypt to Israel. You think you're the only guy who knows what Judaism is. Every store here is kosher and different types of kosher. There's kosher, there's mahadrin, there's mahadrin, minam mahadrin, there's rabbanut, there's right-wing kosher, left-wing kosher, centrist kosher, orthodox kosher, fundamentalist orthodox kosher, Hasidic kosher, meyasharim kosher, borapar kosher. Every type of kosher you have. You have lafa, you have lafa with chips, with onions, without onions, with radish, more kosher, less kosher. And the ice cream, a hundred types of ice cream. One of you will certainly kill you, but they're all kosher. <laughs> Moshe says, you have kosher. He walks into a restaurant to buy something and sees something on the door. 
He asks his helper from Georgia, what's this on the door? He says, Moshe from Egypt, now you're getting me nervous. An old man like you doesn't know what's on the door. Shame on you. That's a mezuzah. He says, what's on your mezuzah? You don't know. In the mezuzah there's parchment. On the parchment there's ink. Portions of the Bible. What God told Moses. And we kiss it. And Moshe sheds two pearls that stream down from his eyes and look like tears as he puts his hand on the mezuzah and gives it a kiss. And then his friend from Georgia says, and now I'll show you something nice. And he brings him in to a Jewish school. And there's a teacher sitting with children. And he's reading to them in Hebrew these words. And God spoke to Moses saying, and Moses smiles. Professor Herzog turns to Professor Toynbee in McGill University. And he says, Professor Toynbee, Socrates, the greatest Greek philosopher who ever lived and one of the greatest minds in human history. Julius Caesar, the most celebrated Roman general, Caesar and statesman, come back to their native countries. The countries that you call nations, nationalities, the countries upon which you confer the attribute of a homeland. Caesar comes to Rome. Socrates comes to Athens, to Greece. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same faith. They don't share the same lifestyle. They don't worship the same God. They don't have the same rituals. They lack the same culture. They don't have the same interests. They don't have the same convictions, passions, ideals, and values. There's almost nothing of the Greece of today that mirrors the Greece of yesteryear. There's almost nothing in the Rome of today that mirrors the Rome of yesteryear. And yet, you call Greece and Italy authentic nations. Moses comes to Tel Aviv today. The same language, the same faith, the same heritage, the same traditions, rituals, commandments, the same lifestyle, the same culture, the same mitzvot, the same education, the same commandments, the same trends and patterns and values and faith. The same Shabbat, the same mezuzah, the same tefillin, the same kosher, the same Torah of three and a half thousand years ago, still there? That's not a nation. Professor Toynbee, if Israel is not a nation, if the Jewish people are not a people, then you, Professor Toynbee, you tell me what is a people? What is it that constitutes a nation? Toynbee was for once in his career Silent. 
This is the answer to Mark Twain's question. There was one feature that accompanied us. What is it? It's called the Torah and its mitzvot. Yiddishkeit. For three and a half thousand years, from New Zealand to Peru, from Russia to Galicia and Hungary, from Western Europe, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, South Africa, North America, South America, wherever Jews were, good times, bad times, exhilarated times, horrific times. They did not unfortunately have a homeland or a language or an army or a culture. But they preserved and they celebrated the Torah and its daily mitzvot. Day in, day out with self-sacrifice and commitment and they bequeathed it to their children and youngsters and grandchildren with love and dedication. Wherever they were and under all circumstances. The skeptic scientist when studying Jewish history and asking Mark Twain's question, what are the ingredients that can explain the mystique of our eternity? And we see there's one thing, namely, one feature that was always there, the Torah and the mitzvahs, brings, I believe, an objective mind to ask this question, if that is the key ingredient. What is the most important ingredient that we as a people need in order to write the next chapter of Jewish history with pride and dignity and joy? And the answer is, what your students, what you are doing right here today, coming together to study to explore, to climb the ladder of Jewish wisdom and the celebration of Jewish life. So today, that torch is handed over to you. And we say, go and march on the road of your people, an eternal people. Thank you very much.